doesn't really take a stretch to say that one of our biggest issues today as a society is anxiety. You could probably call modernity the age of anxiety. Like we all experience anxiety. Uh, the Guardian, uh, four months ago, wrote that stress, anxiety, and depression levels soar under COVID restrictions. And we are all very surprised by that, of course. Who would have ever thought that that would have ever happened? Although in that, in that article, this is interesting, it says 57% of people uh, report symptoms of anxiety. 64% of people report signs of depression. So that means more people are anxious than not. More people are depressed than not, or at least having experiencing those symptoms. And you're probably not surprised because most likely you are part of that 57 or 64% yourself. That long-term negative stress like that, as we see over uh, experiencing something like a pandemic, it has physical symptoms. One of them being something like higher levels of cortisol that all the doctors and nurses in the room could tell me more about. But I know at the very least, higher levels of cortisol is uh, correlated with higher blood pressure. It's more difficult to sleep. It lowers your mood, reduces energy, uh, weight gain, all this kind of stuff. It can contribute to diabetes, all that kind of stuff. But we don't really need to be told that because we know the feelings of anxiety are not good. And if we live under, live under it over a long time, we know we have different kind of interact, like physical manifestations of that. See, anxiety holds us down. Physically, yes. Emotionally, yes. But spiritually also. And this is our age multiplied by life during a pandemic. We were already anxious before the pandemic. Now, even more so. Uh, Gallup, which is a uh, global polling company, found that in America, mental health is down 43% from last year. Again, maybe not too surprising. And even though we're not in America, probably kind of similar. Here, uh, When you get into the numbers, and uh, online you may not be able to read this, but basically you see that it doesn't matter if you're male or female. Your change from last year... Oh, i got a pointer on here. Does it work? Mm, doesn't work on the screen. Your change from last year to this year... It's not good. Change from last year to this year, it's not good. Whether you're a Republican, Independent, or Democrat, it's not good. Particularly bad if you're a Republican. Not a great year for Republicans. Uh, if, you, if you are white or if you, or if you aren't white, it's not good. Uh, if you're married or not married, it's not good. It doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old, it's not good. It doesn't matter if you're poor or rich, it's not good. Like Everybody has experienced negative uh, kind of emotions from last year to this year, negative mental health. But there is one small group that has, not, that has actually had a small positive change, and that's people who attend weekly religious services. Those people said, basically the way that they worked this poll was like a positive 4% from 2019 to 2020. How in the world, going through a pandemic, going through lockdown, how in the world could you grow in your mental health under some horrible circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, coming on a Sunday is going to magically cure your mental health issues. That's just not, that's not what it means. Uh, but it does mean there is some level of correlation between being involved in a spiritual community and not being involved in a spiritual community. One's positive for your mental health. Or at least that's how we've been reporting it as human beings. It's just like how higher cortisol levels are correlated to negative physical health Higher uh, involvement in a spiritual community is positively correlated to positive mental health. And there just might be something to all this that we're doing. There just might be something to it. Can you imagine? And what we believe at Redeemer is this. The only hope that we have in this world, the only one that is strong enough to take our full weight of all our issues, all our burdens, the only one is Jesus. 
And Jesus is building a family for himself. That's, that's what a church is. A church is supposed to function like a family. And the more we lean into that, not just as a thing to show up for, but the kind of relationships that we, uh, that we grow into, the more we experience wholeness and wholeness that we really need. The more we can have a positive 4% jump after having a, such a negative kind of global event. Now, some of us might have found that we thought we were whole. We thought we had this wholeness like kind of wrapped up. Then lockdown came, maybe exposed some areas of our life that maybe weren't as whole as we thought they were before. And maybe some of us aren't even looking for God, and yet now we have questions that we haven't asked before or haven't really bottled up or can't keep bottled up as much. All of that leads to anxiety. If we have a question without an answer, especially a big question, that's, that's anxiety-inducing. And all of us, regardless of where you are with Jesus, we all are anxious, we all experience anxiety, we all worry. Without a place to go with it, though, it really holds us back. It prevents us from getting a good sleep and really prevents us from being humans fully alive. So Jesus, think about Jesus for a second. He should have experienced more anxiety. He should have experienced more worry than anybody. But he was always, as I've said kind of a few sermons ago, he was always the least anxious person in the room. In fact, he was the one telling people, why are you so anxious? When people are like, shouldn't you be anxious, Jesus? He had reason to be more worried than anyone else because even though we feel like the world is on our shoulders, the world was actually on his shoulders, and yet he wasn't anxious with it. So what does it mean to live like that? How can we have that kind of path to walk in? Wouldn't that be great that even if a pandemic came that we could actually grow in our mental health? Wouldn't it be great if like, the worst possible circumstances happened in your life and you aren't shaking completely to your core and like what we talked about in the beginning, that your house wouldn't drift away with the sand? Well, that's why we're going to look at these two verses here in 1 Peter. Uh, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. And before we jump into that, though, because it is just two verses of a larger letter to a bunch of different churches, we're going to look at the context here. Um, Because there is a therefore, humble yourselves, therefore, like, oh, there was some kind of train of thought that was leading to Peter writing this. For... Basically, in the previous couple chapters, Peter's writing about this. He's saying, leaders, you should be the lead servants in the church, in your family, and kind of normal life. Uh, he's telling, uh, and he's telling for people who aren't leaders to surrender to the leadership that God kind of has in, in store, if they are good leaders. And then he also tells for everybody, whether you're a leader or not a leader, clothe yourself in humility, like wrap yourself in humility. Everybody ought to be that way. And he, uh, then he quotes the proverb, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And it's in this context of church life, of leading, of serving, of surrendering, there's humility, and then we get these two verses, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, he may lift you up in due time, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Basically, Peter is saying, this is how to live in community, a community where humans will thrive, not just kind of get by, but actually truly thrive. So we're going to talk about uh, three things, three points today. We are anxious. We'll talk about that first, um, as if we didn't know that, but we'll talk a little bit about maybe what that might mean. Secondly, we'll talk about how God is mighty and cares for us. And third, we'll talk about how humility is freeing. freeing. So first, let's start on that we are anxious um, bit here. We are anxious. So uh, Peter is writing to an early church, plan, or actually like a group of early churches. That way, like this letter would be circulated around. So kind of like us. Uh, and they're anxious. Now, why do we believe that these people are anxious? Well, because Peter tells them to not be anxious. He wouldn't say, 
don't waste your time playing baseball if they're not playing baseball. Like, it wouldn't be a thing. That wasn't even a thing then. But because they're anxious, he says, don't worry. Here, here's how to deal with the anxiety. Here's how to, to deal with your, with your anxiety. Um, thankfully for us today, people were dealing with it then. So there might, we have had technological advances. We've had human rights advances. We've had all sorts of good civilization kind of advances. But really, as humans, we have the same kind of issues, same kind of problems. We're anxious. What do we do with that? Same kind of issues then. And let me also say this before maybe going too much farther on anxiety or really any of these kind of emotions that, we, that we've talked about. It's not really a binary on-off thing. It's not like, I am anxious now, I am not anxious now. It, it's more of like a continuum of you have like clinical anxiety on one side that's completely debilitating and you have like slight feelings of anxiety kind of on this side or slight feelings of worry. Clinical anxiety uh, disrupts your daily life. It, you have trouble eating, you have trouble sleeping, trouble going to work, and this is like happens for over a long, long period of time. If this is you, please go see a doctor because physical realities are part of the issue just as much as spiritual realities are. Go see a GP. Talk to an expert about it. Don't try and avoid it, and don't try to also over-spiritualize your life like, oh, I don't need that kind of help, because you do. God's given doctors and medication as a gift to help us. So there are physical realities that need physical attention. Like if you broke your arm... You wouldn't just say, I'm just going to pray really hard and God's going to fix me. Like, hopefully you'd still pray, but also you'd go see a doctor. If you have something broken in your brain about anxiety, hopefully you're going to pray about it and then also go see a doctor to help them walk you through it. If you're drowning in the ocean, don't overlook the gift of a life preserver that God might have has already sent to you. And if your anxiety is debilitating, as in you can't do normal life, uh, you may kind of resist that because you may not be able to see that very well, but other people in your life will see that. And they'll say, man, I think you really need some help. Listen to those people. Those people love you. Go see your GP. Don't overlook God's gifts. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. All I'm going to say is there are clinical levels of anxiety that need physical attention. And normally this is where we have, oh, if you have more questions about that, like go to redeemermcr.com slash ask. But if you have more questions about that, that's great. Just save them for the Zoom chat at 2 p.m., um, actually, like I have it on the screen here. Yes, 2 p.m. on Zoom. And if you don't have our Zoom link, you can. Uh, it's in the emails that we send out, so you can go to that thing and sign up for our emails, or you can just email or text me, and I'll give you the stuff as well. So anxiety tells us what we care about. We don't get worried about stuff that doesn't matter to us. That's a helpful thing about anxiety. It tells us what we actually care about. It tells us what we're orientated towards. That doesn't necessarily make it good or bad. It just tells us kind of what's going on in our lives. When we live in, in, in anxiety, we're caring for something, but doing so without realizing God's care for that thing as well. So we care for that thing, but we're kind of cutting it off from maybe how God might be involved in it. When we subtract God from whatever kind of circumstance, now all that weight that God gets to bring, all that weight gets put on our shoulders. And then we have to come through as if we're God, but we can't. And so we end up in this loop of anxiety. It's good for us to care about things. It's good for us to give ourselves to others. We're built for it. That's what we're made to do. That's what we're called to do. I mean, it's just like a, a parent worries about their child. They want their child to follow Jesus. They want their child to, I don't know, get a good job. All the kind of stuff that parents worry about their children about. Or a partner is anxious about the other's kind of difficult time at work. This is, these are all really good desires because we're connected to people that we care about. I mean, Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Colossians at the church of Colossae, he said he was um, how do I put, uh, strenuously contending for them. Like he's laboring for them, strenuously contending. 
That's a great way to live, to have a desire for somebody, that you're working for them all the time, that you care about them and you're thinking about them and praying for them. See, our best lives are not kind of zen-filled, removing the desire of things and cutting our ties with everything in the world. Our best lives are when we're most alive and when we really care deeply for something and when we really give ourselves to it, like all of ourselves. And then when we realize that God cares even more for that, that's... That's that's a great way to live. So we can be anxious for others. Uh, We can also be anxious about ourselves. Because why is it right before you go to bed, you get that film reel of all the stupid stuff you've done over your whole life? Or that horrible, dumb conversation you had. Like, oh, why did I say it that way? And it plays over and over and over again, like that 20-second loop. And you're just kind of stuck in that. Now now you can't go to bed because you're kind of thinking through it. Or it could be, why you might be so prone to avoid taking risks because you're anxious about failing. And why you're so prone to uh, stay away from meeting new people because you're anxious, like, oh, maybe they won't like me. And when you do meet new people and you say that dumb thing in the conversation that only you remember, then you play that film over and over and over again. See, anxiety doesn't have to be altogether bad to begin with. Like, that, that's probably a good thing for us to have some levels of anxiety. It means we care. It points to what we care about. But it's when that beginning feeling doesn't stop, and it keeps on going and going, and it kind of grows, and it snowballs a bit out of control. And we get stuck of it, stuck in it. And instead of us being in control of it, like, oh, that's a helpful kind of dashboard warning light. I feel anxious about that. It means I care about that. Oh, maybe I need to pray and bring God into this a little bit more than I have before. That's anxiety under our control. But when we're stuck in a loop, or that film loop, or whatever the things are that holds us back from living life, that's anxiety and control over us. And then we become enslaved to that thing. See, our problem is that kind of crippling anxiety, a big, massive snowball. When anxiety becomes an unhealthy fear, like we don't want to be anxious, nobody wants to be anxious, and yet we all are. A feeling of anxiety is like the top part of an iceberg. It signals to us all the larger issues that are going on underneath. And this holds us down. Living in anxiety does stop from taking risks. Anxiety doesn't lead to being a more open person. It doesn't lead to wanting to meet new people. It doesn't lead to life. It sucks the life from us. It's like a vampire. Now, I don't think I need to tell you maybe too much more about why anxiety is bad for you mentally, emotionally, or physically, even though I'm sure there are people here struggling with anxiety that haven't been honest with others about how they're struggling with it. But it also harms us by keeping our world small. It keeps our world really, really small. It narrows our vision. Because anxiety for others or ourselves, it keeps us stuck on ourselves. It's an inward kind of thing. When we're stuck in anxiety, we miss out on God's massive mission in this world and all the areas that we can get involved in. If we're stuck watching that small looping film reel kind of in this little compartment of our life, we can't possibly open our eyes to the massive IMAX screen of God's massive mission in this world. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the parable of the soils. He's going around and he's saying, why do some plants grow? Or people are asking him, Jesus, why do some people hear your words and don't seem to change at all? And Jesus, why do some people hear their words and it seems like they come to life? Why do some plants grow and some plants don't? Uh, and he gives a, a couple reasons for this. But the one that, about worry and anxiety is, is in Luke eight fourteen. He says, the seed that fell among the, the seed is kind of like Jesus' words. So Jesus' words that fell among the thorns, uh, this kind of story he's talking about, stands for those who hear. So it's not that they don't hear, but they do hear. But as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries. They're choked by anxiety. They're choked by riches and pleasures, and they don't mature. 
a life or a plant that's choked will eventually die. Maybe not immediately, but it'll be like a slow, sad death. The worries of this life choke out the plant. A plant that's choked out will, will wither. And this is what a life of anxiety and worry does to us. It chokes us out mentally, emotionally, physically, and definitely spiritually. I talked about anxiety being kind of like an iceberg, like where we see the top, but there's like a whole lot more going on underneath. Uh, here's how anxiety is like that. We get choked out by anxiety when, when we believe the lie that it's all up to us. We believe it's all up to us. We're on our own. God either doesn't exist, or if he does, he doesn't really care, or he's not, maybe not powerful enough to do anything about it. And when we remove uh, God from our reality, we have to place that, that burden, that pressure of, of, of some kind of energy having to come through somewhere, and so we put it on our backs. Some put it in politics. Some think if the political situation was better, then everything would be great. Um, or if it's not good, think, oh, we're always going to be doomed. This is true of people the left and the right, by the way. It's not like a dig at any particular kind of uh, politic, political view. Or we put that weight of power on ourselves. Like when we mess up, why can't we get over it? Well, if we're a god, we're not supposed to mess up. If we're creatures, creatures mess up. Gods do not mess up. Creatures do. So if we have difficulty with our failings, maybe we're not really believing that God is actually involved in our lives. Because we don't like that feeling, though, uh, of, of that pressure, of that weight, and we seek out our own kind of comfort zone where we minimalize the potential for failing. And that's how it keeps our world small. That comfort zone becomes a prison because we never venture outside of that because it's bad enough inside of it. If I venture out there and fail, like, oh, that's a crushing weight. I can't handle it anymore. So we get our comfort zones become our prisons. We get in prison there. Worry prevents us from growing into what we ought to be, just like how Jesus talked about in Luke 8. It chokes the life out of us. So where are the risk takers? Oh, they're all overwhelmed by worry. They're all imprisoned in their own comforts. Think of life as like a big, a big beach ball. This is all of life. This is the spiritual world, the emotional world, or physical world. Everything is in that. And God as well. All of us, God, this is like all of life. What we have done over the past few hundred years is shrink our experience of life by removing the reality of the spiritual world kind of pressing in on us. So we take that beach ball and we compress it down to like a, a ping pong ball, a small little tiny ping pong ball. The spiritual world isn't a necessity to believe in anymore. It's like, a good, it's like an option. I can believe it or not, or it doesn't really affect my life at all. Um, it's true of all of us, by the way, regardless of your belief. We come into this world because this is the culture that we live in, default mode like this. I mean, when was the last time spiritual realities affected how you do your grocery shop? Probably not. 500 years ago, that was different. What about... Um, when you go out to walk and where you walk and what happens to you on your walk, like spiritual realities aren't really kind of involved in that very often. By default, 500 years ago, that was very different. So we don't really believe there's a real spiritual world out there by ourselves. We have to kind of work at it. We have to try and get there. That's why part of what we do on a Sunday together is remember the reality that we live in a much bigger world. It's a different situation 500 years ago. Now, I'm not saying we should go back to time 500 years ago because there were Horrible things that happened 500 years ago. But one thing we have missed over time is uh, shrinking all of our life into that little beach ball or into that little ping pong ball. We, all of us in this room, live in a smaller world if left by ourselves by default. And if we stay that way, it has its own effects. Because what we try and do 
because life really is as big as that beach ball, what we try and do is cram it down. We like take all the air out and try and cram it down into that ping pong ball sized thing. And we can mostly do it. Like mostly it kind of works. But every now and then it's kind of, ah, it's not fitting. It's not really working. There's like this difficulty here. And there's, you have that 1% little problem or that 2% little problem. And it doesn't really work. And now that little kind of compact little ping pong ball is, is dense and it's weighty. And the weight of the universe is supposed to be spread out. Now it's all on us. No wonder we feel anxious. This is kind of the life that we live in. That's an impossible bait for, weight for us to bear. No wonder we feel anxious. Now here's how this might work out. Those are like maybe metaphorical illustrations. When you have a problem in life, do you pray first? Is that the very first thing? Oh, I must talk to the God of heavens and earth. Like, probably not, and hopefully we do get there, but that may not be like the very first thing that comes in on your brain. Do we consider the reality of a God infinitely powerful and infinitely involved in our lives all the time, even in the boring, mundane stuff that all of us live in? Do we really think that God is like impressing himself, his presence into us while we're, you know, making, I don't know, noodles on the stove or whatever kind of like really boring thing, doing the washing up, all that kind of stuff. When we have problems that we go over again and again and again in our heads, when we can't seem to get beyond what we've done in our past, when we fear the future because we can see how we can fail in so many other ways, when Jesus asks, asks the crowd in Matthew six twenty seven, can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life, our actions in answer, in response to Jesus, say, yes, we can, or at least we're really going to try. I'm going to worry harder tomorrow. Maybe things will work out better. Maybe the answer is that we aren't worrying enough. No, I don't, hopefully that's not it. Because what does God's word tell us? Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, before we look at what we should do and make it kind of like this is how to get better at anxiety kind of sermon, um, what we're going to do is look at who God is and what he's done for us. Because if we understand that, that gives us a foundation as to how we ought to respond. So we're going to look at how God is mighty and how he cares for us, just how this kind of verse describes him. God is mighty and cares for us. Now, Peter is writing about something very specific here. The mighty hand of God. Oh, I don't have it on the screen. If you have it on your your app or, or your Bible. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Now, there is... That's a very particular, Peter's using this phrase for a reason, because it shows up one other time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the Exodus. So the, the background of the Exodus, uh, the Israelites are um, slaves under Egypt, uh, the Pharaoh it has them under control, and God, through the leadership of Moses, is going to free his people in order to be able to worship him in the way that, they're, that they ought to. And the way that they were going to come out of this, there are plagues, there's parting of the Red Sea, the Israelites are kind of wandering around in the desert for 40 years, but also God feeds them manna from heaven, which is crazy, like water comes out of rocks, all sorts of nutty, crazy things. But one thing that comes up often is the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God. God's mighty hand is what's leading them. His power is what's giving them the freedom that they really need in their lives so they're not enslaved anymore. See, the power of God in the Exodus was used to rescue people from slavery, and give them their own land to thrive. That's the mighty hand of God at work. That's what was going on in that original Exodus. And it also says in that verse of uh, 1 Peter, um, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand. He might lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. What's that last part? Because he cares for you. He's not just powerful, full stop. 
He's powerful and he cares for you. He cares for you. To care for someone means to be concerned with them, to you know, like involve yourself with them, to give yourself to them. I mean, how often do you realize that you are of interest to God? You're not a bother to him. You're not a disappointment to him. You're, an inter- you're of interest to him and he loves you and he cares for you. Often, I don't know, if, if you're like me at all, you're kind of having some sense of I'm not doing enough or I'm not kind of also, it has to do with the family that I grew up. Maybe you didn't grow up in the same kind of family as me. Hopefully you didn't. I'm like, if only I could do something good to make God happy. But that's not, he's already happy. He already cares for you. He loves you. And this caring comes up in Exodus as well. While the Israelites were enslaved, this is very, actually the very beginning of, of the book of Exodus, and the Exodus stories, Exodus 2. It says, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered their, his promise to them, and he looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Same kind of concern, same kind of level of, of interest and care. What did the Israelites have to offer? They're a measly little, small little people group, enslaved. They're not doing anything great for God. They're not doing anything. I mean, and to be fair, they weren't even really worshiping, that, worshiping him that well. They just felt the pain of slavery and were like, I don't want to feel this way anymore. God, won't you help us? It's kind of forced into a corner. But they cried out. And when they cried out, God heard them and he cared for them. This is God's mighty hand at work in caring for us. And this is the God that we get to serve. Not a God that's demanding stuff from us, but a God who's already given us everything. He's in control of everything. He's in control of creation. He's in control of our well-being. He's in control of our circumstances even and especially when we are inadequate by ourselves to do anything good. In your trouble, in your anxiety, in your worry, do you call to him? This is the kind of God he is. Why would we not call to him? Because he's there, he's listening, he cares for you, and his hand is mighty. He has a mighty hand and he cares for you. So that's a little bit about who God is. What do we do with that? Because great, God's mighty, and great, God cares for people, I'm still anxious. What do I do with that? Well, what, what does this verse teach us in 1 Peter? Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. To cast something means to get something away from you. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. See, humility, see, it starts with humility is kind of the, what, we are, what we should be doing. Humility is freeing. It frees us. It stops us from having to live and be choked out by that anxiety, be choked out by worry. If we humble ourselves, if we cast our anxiety on him, which are things that we have to do, we don't just kind of sit there and let it happen, he will lift us up. Instead of being choked out on the ground, he will lift us up. We don't have to be choked out. We can live big lives even if we struggle with fear. We can be fully alive humans. So let's talk a little bit about what does humble ourselves mean. What does it mean? Well, three things, and I apologize in advance for the alliteration. I try and not do um, kind of like cute alliteration all the time. Maybe I should do it more often. I know it's probably helpful for people to remember. I just have this, this thing about like sometimes I have a, a cheese level that's just kind of like if something is a bit cheesy, I'm like, I really don't like it, which probably means I, can, I should probably you know, let the cheese in a little bit more because it might be helpful. That's just uh, my anxiety as a preacher coming out right in front of you now. Um, so there's three things. It's plural. It's uh, particular and it's purposeful. 
Humility is plural, particular, and purposeful. Now, you guys are all going to remember that, even though I'm like, oh, I cannot believe I just said that. Um, so, hey, there we go. Alliteration for the win. Okay, plural. Go back to, that, to your verse in your Bible or in your, on your phone or whatever it is. Look at all the yous in there. Humble yourselves. That's a plural. That's not like single. That's you, yourselves. Therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you, plural, up in due time. Cast all your plural anxiety, a communal casting of anxiety on him because he cares for you, plural. I bet the first time you read this, you thought it was talking about you specifically, like individually. But that's not what Peter's writing. That's not what God says. It's all plural. It's all communal. It's all relational. And it's, what does it mean to, as a community, cast anxiety on God? Like, I think because we're stuck in this toxic individualism of our time, we don't really even know what that means. We're like, I don't, like it sounds good, I think. I don't know what that means. Let's get a little bit into it. Okay, um, Paul is writing to a church. He's not writing to individuals. This isn't a, an individual letter that he's writing to one guy or one girl, whatever. He's writing to a community of people. And remember, these verses come in the context of what does it mean to live in a life-giving, like thriving community. So as a church, as we like to say, as a gospel-formed family on mission, a family isn't made up of individual people doing their own thing. And hopefully there is like um, individual people doing their own thing, but also people who come together as well. A functional family works together. And working together means we work against that toxic individualism that leaves us to ourselves. And you notice like anxiety and worry always makes us feel lonely, always makes us feel like we have to come through ourselves. So humility is plural. This is something that we do in core groups. It's something that we do in one-to-one um, interactions, something we do in missional communities, and Sundays, of course, we do it. Also, outside of group meeting times, like we don't have to have a group meeting time to talk about humility. You can just talk to somebody who is a friend and redeem, or someone who's not even a friend, but someone that you want to be open with and say, oh, I was going to ask this on Sunday, but we didn't have that time. Can I just like chat about you, chat to you about this thing I'm really going through? I feel like I'm really anxious about it. So it's plural. It's also particular, because we aren't just generically humble. We're particularly humble before our mighty and caring God. Our mighty and caring God. That's like a submission. It's a surrender. Being humble means knowing where our limits are and embracing them, even if we don't like it. You don't have to like the fact that you're a created being, but that's not going to change reality that you're a created being. Knowing where our failures are and yet still moving forward. And we mess up. We say sorry. When we realize we're trying to take control, we say sorry. And we ask the Holy Spirit to work in us to keep us in this particular type of humility, humility before God. Because there is false humility. We all hear that all the time. Anytime someone famous or a politician or whatever runs into some kind of problem and they have to give some kind of apology through you know, online or whatever, it's always kind of generally false. I'm sorry that those people were hurt in that way, which is not really like owning anything. And then, or there's kind of like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm such a hard worker. You know, the kind of false humility we, always, we, we can put to make ourselves look good, humble brags. There's also a generic humility. I'm like, well, who are you sorry to? Or like, who are you, what are you sorry for? I'm just generally sorry. That's not what Peter's talking about here. We humble ourselves before God under his hand. And following Jesus calls us to cast our anxieties on him. And that's a function of trust, which is what faith is. We, you, don't, you don't give somebody something meaningful that you don't trust like you you have to trust and if we're casting our anxieties on jesus that shows we have to trust in him like if if we don't trust in jesus we won't give him his anxiety our anxieties if we do trust in him 
then one aspect of that, the fruit of that, will be that our anxieties go to him and they aren't just resting on us. And if we have faith, we will do that. If we don't have faith, we won't. And we'll take that burden upon ourselves. That's just not a great way to live. Now, it might mean casting your anxiety over and over and over and over again, every day, multiple times a day, however much uh, it might come up in your life. And remember, casting, it's not keeping it close. It's like a thing, the first word cast I think of, I'm not really much of a fisherman, but when you cast something, it goes out into the lake or the ocean or whatever. It doesn't stay near you. You don't cast by dropping something right in front of you. You throw that thing away. So you're throwing that thing as far away as you can onto Jesus. Now, often that weight finds its way kind of slowly coming back, and then it means you have to cast it again. You have to throw it away. Don't let it stay here with you. Throw that thing back to Jesus. So it's particular. Uh, it's also purposeful. Because there's a purpose in all this as well. What happens? Peter says, we will be lifted up. And not just generically, but God will lift us up. When you are crushed under crippling anxiety and worry, and you know what that, everyone knows what that feels like, being able to be lifted up, even when your circumstances don't change, that is what we get from the Holy Spirit inside of us. That is a supernatural reality. We don't make this ourselves. Like this goes beyond kind of managing anxiety and making it like, you know, controllable. This is experiencing anxiety, giving it to Jesus, and experiencing his peace that goes beyond normal understanding. Now this isn't an immediate resolution. Notice he says, God will lift us up in due time. It's not like immediately. I wish it was. I wish it was. you could just say a prayer, God, take my anxiety. Like, ah, oh, so good. Now I'm good for another 24 hours. That would be amazing. But for whatever reason, that's not kind of how life works. Not all our anxieties will be sorted when we want them to. Not all our anxieties will be sorted even in our lifetime. But through the work of Jesus, everything will be made right in due time. That's not our time. That's in Jesus' time. Jesus' timing. So we can be anxious about small things like our circumstances. We can also be anxious about big things like past sins and the weight that we feel like it's on us. But all of us, through Jesus, will be lifted up in due time. And we have to be honest with our anxieties and worries with each other, because remember, it's plural, before we can really do this well. Now, let's just say someone comes to you about a worry that they have. Maybe put this in some kind of real-world situations here. Often, it just kind of looks like moaning, like, ugh, something like uh, the weather, whatever kind of thing, you know. Um, and we all kind of, we all do that. Our typical response is just to kind of join in. Like, yeah, that sounds horrible. I'm with you, I'm on your side. Or merely talk about the circumstances. Oh, have you tried doing this and this? Maybe that'll fix it. And, you know, that's, that's okay, maybe, to start with. But how are we together as a church family, not just as, like, generic people, but as a church family, living these verses out together? If that person is a believer, you can ask them lots more questions about that anxiety that they're feeling. Like, what's really going on? Maybe there's something beneath the surface. Remember, it's a bit of an iceberg situation. Don't assume that we always know everything about ourselves. Often we need other people to take those things um, out of us. Find where their story meets the gospel story, because it will every single time. That means you need to know the gospel story really well, because there's no story we've experienced that the gospel does not speak into. And when we do this, we pray together. That's kind of what we do as people who follow Jesus. Remember, it's plural, it's particular, and we get the purpose in it. Now, if that person is not a believer and they're sharing anxieties with you, first of all, that's great that people are, are doing that. That's great. Every time someone shares a story about themselves, it's an invitation to know them more. Every single time. 
And they're not just giving you information about circumstances. And they're telling you about, they're sharing their life with you. And so your job to honor that is to ask more questions about it, find out more about it. Maybe this is part of something bigger. Where is the iceberg in their life? They may not follow Jesus yet, but the gospel will still speak to that. Then find where their anxiety meets the gospel and speak in words that they understand in their circumstance that they're dealing with. Not what you think they should hear, or not in the ways that you're comfortable with, but in ways that they need to hear, in the ways that they're going to be comfortable with. You can tell them um, that though they may not pray, maybe they, they would feel weird about like praying about it with you, and that's completely fine. If you don't follow Jesus, you shouldn't expect anyone to follow God's law. But you can say, I'll pray for you about it, if that's all right. And when you do, ask them about it. Like a week from now, two weeks from now. Oh, how'd that thing go? I remember, I've been praying for you about it. Here, here's maybe an example. Um, Let's say you have a neighbor that has an issue with another neighbor. Uh, they're talking to you about it, and it just kind of sounds really, really frustrating. It's like, oh man, if I had that neighbor, I'd be going crazy. It would be horrible. You ask more questions, and you find out it's more than just inconvenient. It's affecting sleep, and they find themselves in like negative moods because they're thinking bad thoughts about this person. As much as they might hate that neighbor, they don't want to be kind of plagued by bad thoughts and that negative kind of vibes. I mean, there's so much to connect to the gospel in that, even in those little, few little sentences there, how the Holy Spirit can free us from the power of sin, how the power of prayer in our lives, even just for us, having a God that sees us even when nobody else does or when no one else gets it. To say, hey, I've been praying about this situation. How are things going? Um, and not just in that circumstance, but for that person themselves, how they're responding to it. You can share how when, maybe when you've been in difficult, anxious situations, and how when you took it to God, how it, how it helped you in, in your life. And if you have questions, remember, about any of this, um, join the, the Zoom chat at 2 p.m. today. Um, all of this turns out that our anxiety is more than a problem to be solved. More than a problem to be solved. It means that our troubles can be doorways for others to see God. Others' troubles are the same kind of doorways for them to come to God and, 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 and in, in all of life. And whatever you are in now, whether you're here, whether you're online, whatever you are in now, whatever you have been in the past, to be able to see how God was at work and to tell that to others, that's really life-giving in a way that someone can understand. And it gives your trouble purpose. It gives your trouble dignity. That's just called evangelism. You don't have to like, have some kind of program or whatever. You just talk about how God's worked in your life. Now, how can any of this like, really be true? How can any of this really be real? The only way that we can be lifted up this isn't just something like, wouldn't it be great if this is true? The only way this is true is because Jesus was lifted up. Jesus was lifted up on the cross. And we get to be lifted up to live because he was lifted up to die. He also, because he's God, he lifted himself up in his resurrection. And more than that, in his ascension, where he is now at God's right hand in control over everything. His hand is mighty and he cares for us. And he continues to lift us up. See, the first exodus, people were enslaved. They were in dire need of help, of something or someone more powerful for them to come through and free them from that and give them a better life. And God's mighty hand led them to freedom and led them to flourishing. One of the reasons that Jesus died was to free us from the slavery that we so often bring upon ourselves. We were so stuck in it Nothing less than the death of God himself could free us. And that second exodus, similar to the first, but now the first becomes, even though it's 
a real event. It becomes a bit of a, a metaphor and a spiritual story for us to live into. That second exodus is what we live in now. And it's led by Jesus, not led by Moses, it's led by Jesus. We're enslaved by our anxieties. We're enslaved by our worries. We, in all our circumstances, everything is beyond our control. We were once stuck in the penalty of sin, punishments that we deserved, but were far too heavy for us to bear. And yet Jesus sent God himself, the Holy Spirit, to all those who believe in him. His mighty hand leads us to freedom and flourishing now, even in a pandemic. And that path of freedom and flourishing passes through humbling ourselves under him. We'll miss it if we don't kind of take hold of that. It takes putting this into practice, humbling ourselves under him. His mighty hand also leads to a full eternal life. And eternal life isn't just something that we get in the future. Eternal life, that word eternal is more of a qualitative experience of life. Yes, it is something in the future, but not just something in the future. Eternal life is something we experience now as dealt with our past, dealt with our future, and also is alive with us in our present, secure in the mighty and caring hands of the Lord. And so now, we don't get choked out. Now we aren't left for dead. Now we get to experience a full life, now and forever. 